If you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to the book of John, chapter 20. We're still in our series, working our way through the Gospel of John. We're almost at the end. John, chapter 20. And um, the, whole, the whole chapter is fantastic. But as I was reading it this week, I, I was really challenged to stop at verse 10 and uh, to let verse 10 be the place or verse 9 actually, be the place that we rest. Let's, uh, let's pray as we open the scriptures together. Father, I pray for your words, not mine. I pray that as we share together on the resurrection, that it will be a uh, life-changing realisation, a belief so pivotal and so strong in our hearts that it drives everything that we do. I thank you in advance for the fact that your scripture does not return void but it will accomplish all which you have set it forth to do and so that's what we're asking now in Jesus name amen can we have the first slide please Kath this doesn't look like it's working again might be because of this Kath Can you take that down to Kath, please? Always helps when you plug it in. So I've entitled this message, The Resurrection, Do You Believe It? Now, all of, of course, we, we would all say, yeah, yeah, of course we believe the resurrection. It's central and pivotal to Christian faith and thinking. But, um, you know, I'm not certain that we actually really believe it the way that we should our world is driven by the pursuit of solving our mortality. Every single day on the news we hear of uh, uh, um, medical advances in things like diabetes and uh, cancer and we hear of new super drugs that are going to solve this problem or that problem. People are flushing their bodies with alkaline water. Others are having their blood heated up as it's taken through a dialysis machine. People are willing to do almost anything, it would seem, to solve this issue of our mortality, the pursuit of the fountain of youth. People put their faith in all kinds of things, special diets, vegetable cocktails, electrical current devices attached to your nervous system, leeches, no one does that anymore. Well, no, they, people still do do that, actually. But anyway, for other reasons. We, we believe some pretty crazy things as a society. And we'll do some pretty crazy things as a society. But you start talking about the resurrection of the dead, people are going to think you're crazy. You don't actually believe that. That people rise from the dead? Which brings us to John. John brings us to the most significant crazy Christian belief, the one that people would say is putting our own sanity to the test. 
the resurrection. In John chapter 20, verse 1 to 10, we heard Caleb read earlier this morning, it was the Sunday and Mary came early to, to bring spices and lay them on Jesus. Maybe she wasn't happy with the job the men did on the Friday. But for one reason or another, she came prepared to do that and she showed up and the stone was rolled away, which is good because she was probably wondering, how am I going to move that stone? And she goes in and finds the body gone. She races back and tells the disciples and Peter and John run with all their energy to the tomb. Peter goes straight on in, in typical fashion, even though John beat him to the punch. John was there first, but Peter runs straight on in and has a look and sees the, the, the grave clothes lying there and, and the linen folded up and, and John stands outside, he says. He said he, he waited to see. He looked in from the outside. But then, after Peter, he gained the courage. He walked the inside and saw the same thing. But listen to what verse 9 says. Verse nine, well, I'll read from verse 8, actually. The other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, that's called one-upmanship. I beat Peter, but anyway, that's beside the point. That's not part of the story, is what John's saying. Even though I beat Peter, it said that he reached the tomb first, then he went in, he saw... And he believed. He went in, he saw, and he believed. Verse 9 says, For yet they did not understand yet the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. So John brings this significant, crazy thinking to the table as he shows us this idea of the resurrection. The scripture says John saw and believed and that is our challenge afresh today. As we again consider the reality of the resurrection, you know, Christ is not just a metaphor for good living. It's not just a philosophy of good moral teaching, of a way to live and leave the world a better place as a result of your living in it. Trusting in Christ is so much more than that. And the scripture tells us that John saw and believed. He's a risen saviour. I may have told you in the past the story of my friend who had been a Christian for many, many years. He'd even been a pastor earlier in his life and his first marriage had ended. And 20 years later he came across a nice Christian lady who he'd met in social circles and they got to know one another. They used to go to the swim club together and, and they would talk and they would go for coffee and it seemed like they had a real uh, commonality and so they got married. And two weeks into the marriage, she comes into him in the morning and says, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. And he's like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? We're just married. What do you mean you're leaving? She said, well, I've been watching you for the last two weeks. She said, and I've never seen anyone like you before. She said, when we said we were Christians, she said, I thought we were saying the same thing. She said, like, no one actually really believed it. We just go 
to church because it's a good social construct and we say we believe because it gives us good values to live by, but you're the first person I've actually met who actually believes in Jesus. And I don't think that I can be with you because I think I'm an atheist. And so their marriage, he did everything he could to love her and support her and help her and think about how he could best... This was a big, shocking discovery at this point because she said she believed, but she didn't really believe. And the greatest point of contention is the resurrection from the dead. The greatest point of contention is the resurrection from the dead. She didn't think that anyone actually really believed, and he really did. And that's what John tells us in verse 9. He says of himself that when he went in, he saw and he believed. When he went in, he saw and he believed. Now, I had a bit of a revelation as I was studying this scripture this week and thinking about the implications of this because verse 10, verse 9 says that they hadn't even yet fully understood the teaching that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead. And yet John's saying he saw and he believed. And I asked a few people, what do you think he's talking about he believed here? Is he talking about he believed the resurrection, that Jesus had risen from the dead? Because in the very next verse he says, no, we didn't quite get that yet. We hadn't quite understood that yet. John wrote this gospel, this book of John that we've been working our way through over the last 20 or so weeks. And his goal was that you and I might believe. Not just the resurrection, but believe. Not just believe in a kind of surface, kind of social way, but believe deeply in an unmovable anchor kind of way. In a nothing's going to shake me kind of way in an I am firmly convinced in Jesus and all that he said, did and taught, all that he's accomplished and all that he's done and all that is yet to come, I am anchored kind of belief. And as I've considered this statement that John made here, I've come to the conclusion that this was his moment of belief. This was the moment that everything, all the pieces came together, interlocked and he went, ah, I get it. Jesus really is who he said he was. Everything that he said about God is true. Everything that he said about himself is true. I can firmly and confidently believe in him. I believe that this was, if you like, John's moment of conversion. Because he tells us it wasn't just the resurrection, they hadn't worked that out yet. I think it was the conversion of the soul, the aha moment, that turning from darkness to light, that moment where all the pieces came together, enough for him to say, I have faith in God, let God be called true and all men be called liars. I don't care what the world says anymore. I'm trusting God. I don't care how crazy it sounds. I'm trusting God. I don't care how unbelievable this idea is. I'm trusting God. And I think that he challenges us today. In John chapter 20, verse 30, as he gets to the end 
of this book, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. John has taken us over the last many weeks through seven significant signs that show us the power of Christ as the Son of God. But none of them stand against the resurrection. They all pale in significance compared to the resurrection. He's drawing a line in the sand and saying you can only be on one side of it or the other. Where you rise or fall on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is where your Christian walk rises or falls. And so I want to share with you today that your Christian belief rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've often heard, often at Easter, about the defence of the resurrection from the evidentiary point of view, that there were multiple eyewitnesses from Mary and Peter and the ten disciples and then the ten disciples plus Thomas and even 500 people at one time, two guys on the road to Emmaus, that these accounts meant it could not have been a hallucination or some kind of ecstatic religious vision or experience it was a real thing. Jesus ate with them. He ate food, so there was a physical body. They touched him, so there was a physical expression. It wasn't just some kind of spiritual thing. We know that these disciples went from a group of defeated and hopeless devotees, lost in sadness and misery at the death of their rabbi, and somehow they turned into fired-up missionaries declaring the risen Lord, even in the peril of their own deaths. And who would die for such a lie as that? What benefit would it serve if Jesus had not risen? But this morning I wonder if we could just consider a few maybe less frequently observed considerations. I remember growing up the story of Lindy Chamberlain, Lindy and Azaria, um, in, in uh, Ayers Rock, this baby disappeared. And there was a, a, a statement, a dingo stole my baby. The dingo had come and killed her child, taken it away. But there was a media frenzy and it all focused on Lindy Chamberlain. And all of a sudden, it was no longer a dingo that had stolen the baby, but that she had killed her own child and disposed of the evidence. It was a terrible, terrible story. And Lindy was constantly harassed by the media and the police were very militant in their approach on her. And, and Lindy was tried and convicted and went to jail for the death of her child. However, three years later, an inquiry was opened when new evidence came to light of the, the jacket of the baby that had been found and her charge was overturned. Not only was it overturned, she was exonerated 
She was declared not guilty of all charges and she was set free, never to return to jail. So which was the justice? The justice was being set free for a crime she didn't commit. I believe that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a powerful illustration, a powerful illustration of the justice of God. You see, we often talk about how Christ was the one who paid our price in our place. We think about how a God of justice could let sinners go free, and the answer is he can't let sinners go free. There must be a payment made, and that Christ stood in our place to make that payment on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might be declared the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians tells us. But think about this for a second. How much justice would there be in the universe if the God of all justice let an innocent man die for crimes he didn't commit? There's a really powerful logic here that shows that God has exonerated justice as he raised Christ from the dead. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that just prove this point. And I might be proving it in vain because you might already believe it, of course. But let's just think about it for a minute and encourage our faith together. In John 1 verse 29, John sees Jesus coming at a distance and he says, Look, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The perfect Lamb of God, a lamb without blemish. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22, Peter, the first disciple to run into the tomb, that's called one-upmanship as well, because Peter was very clear on the fact, well, I, got, I went in first, and John's like, but I got there first, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Peter, um, in verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 2, says this, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one, listen to this, who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, even as he was sent to the cross for a crime he didn't commit. As he paid the price for the sin of the whole world, how is God going to undo this injustice? Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, of course, we think about Jesus as being a sinless man, but how often do we think about the fact that it wasn't right for a sinless man to die for the sins of the world? God has exonerated both himself in his justice and Christ in his death through the resurrection of the dead. In John 19, verse 4, even Pilate 
came to the same conclusion. He said, look, I'm bringing him out to you and I want to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. In Isaiah 53, the most beautiful passage that talks about Christ's death even before his, his name has ever been said. In Isaiah 53 verse 9 we read, He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. There isn't actually a person alive who can claim that to have done no violence or to have never spoken deceitfully. Jesus is the one and only who can make that claim. He was in every way a perfect man who never sinned. He was the sinless Lamb of God. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the innocent, yet in the grave he was associated with the wicked. Pilate could find no fault in him. Peter said of him that he had not sinned. Hebrews tells us that he, he never knew sin. And we understand that God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But how could a God of justice let this stand? Well, he didn't. He didn't let it stand. He let it stand to do that for which it was purposed, that was that Jesus died for the sin of the whole world so that we don't have to. But then, in an amazing and logical outworking, he raised him from the dead, liberated, exonerated, an innocent man set free. The ultimate example of the justice of God. The resurrection. A lot of people say, how could, how could a God let his own son die? How could he send his own son to the cross? How could a God, and they're, they're saying, you know, what kind of a terrible God is this? No, no. This is the most compassionate and loving God who loved you and I so much that he did this on our behalf and then he exonerated him and has lifted him to the highest of all places. But as I was pondering, I was thinking about, well, what is the impact of the resurrection for you and I? What is the impact of the resurrection on our everyday life? And I had to ask myself the question, well, well what, if, what if it didn't happen? That's the honest way you can ask about the impact of something, is to say, well, what if it wasn't? Where would we be if there was no resurrection from the dead? We're not alone in that musing because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about him that he raised up the Christ whom he hasn't raised up if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life alone, we should be pitied more than anyone else. What sobering words the Apostle Paul brings to us on this idea what if there was no resurrection from the dead? Perhaps, and well, we actually know it's true, there were the materialists of Paul's day in Corinth who believed if there was some kind of resurrection, it was spiritual only, that the soul carried on, but that there was no physical resurrection from the dead. Like the materialists of our day, they say there's no such thing. It can't happen. When they think about what must have happened in the tomb, they say something like, oh, well, maybe he, he swooned. Maybe Jesus, he wasn't really dead. As um, the princess bride says, your friend here is only mostly dead. But mostly dead is kind of slightly alive. No, no fans of princess bride we've got a few fans okay okay mostly dead they 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 argue that he wasn't really dead that he 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 had been taken down from the cross and they put him in the tomb and then then he recovered i don't know though what was he recovering from again a scourging and a beating and being flogged with cat and nine tails so that his back was a bloody mess and then carried a cross and then didn't carry the cross because he wasn't capable of carrying the cross because he was in so much pain and so already so damaged. And then he was nailed to it, hands and feet, held up in the sun. Then he died, or swooned apparently. And then someone spierced his side with a, with a spear so that blood and water flowed out. And then they took him down from that and put him in a tomb. I reckon a recovery from that is a pretty good miracle. I don't know, I think it might take as much faith to believe in the recovery from that than it would take to believe in the rising from the dead, right? It was... So the materialists of our day would, would say anything else is possible except for rising from the dead impossible but just remember as we say that it's impossible our materialist friends would say that they claim to know far more than we do about this immense universe let's just assume that we only know about one percent of all that there is out there i reckon in the other 99 percent there's absolutely possible uh, guarantee that jesus rose from the dead nonetheless the jews believed in the re resurrection at the end of all things but the early church in corinth came to some doubt as to the veracity of the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul addresses it head on. He says, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, here's the result. If, if resurrection is impossible, if there's no such thing as the resurrection, here's the result. Christ has not been raised. Faith is useless. Where all the apostles, all of us who are teaching you, are liars... All your dead friends are dead forever. No one's going to be raised. And, if that's not bad enough, you're still in your sins. All the dead are lost. 
What a pitiful life. If Christ has not been raised, there's no heaven, no eternal life, no forgiveness of sins, no advocate to plead on our behalf when we do sin, no indwelling of the risen Christ, no my sheep hear my voice, no power to overcome, no truth to the promises of the Bible, no hope. You know what we're left with? All we're left with, if there is no resurrection from the dead, is a book filled with the highest moral standards we could ever come up with and no power to attain them. Christianity without a risen Christ is the ugliest of all religions because it puts on people a burden they can't carry and then points at what's wrong with everybody else while giving yourself a pass for the things that you don't live up to yourself. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people to be most pitied. And so why bother? If there's no benefit, if Christ's not raised from the dead, why bother? In verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, we may as well eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. A life without the resurrection is no Christianity at all. Thanks be to God that Paul gets over his little escapade as he thinks about what, what it's like with no resurrection. In chapter 15, he says, I want to be clear to you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. <coughs> He says it's the gospel I first passed on to you. And so I just want to suggest to you how central to Christian teaching the gospel, this gospel of the resurrection was. In Acts chapter 2 verse 23 and 24, when Peter gets up in front of um, the, the people who were there at Pentecost, he says... Um, to his fellow Israelites, he says, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pain of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Very first Christian sermon ever, Peter emphasised the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. But then in Acts 4, verse 10, the very next sermon that we see when they're in front of um, 
the, they've been drawn in, uh, arrested and drawn in front of the Jewish leadership. And in chapter 4, verse 10, again, Peter, this time with um, some others with him, says, Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing here before you is healthy. So that was talking about the man who had been um, healed of his lameness. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, again, this is the early New Testament sermons. Every time they got up to preach, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God has exalted this man to the right hand as the ruler and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then in Acts 7, verse 56, even at the stoning of Stephen, Stephen gives them this sermon that actually is really a history of all Israel. And he doesn't actually get all the way to Jesus. He's incensed them before he gets all the way to Jesus. But even as they're stoning Stephen, in verse 56 of Acts chapter 7, we read Stephen saying out loud, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Even as he is facing his own death at the end of a most powerful sermon, Stephen declares the risen Christ. Every early sermon emphasised not only the death of Christ for sins, which we tend to emphasise a lot, but the risen Christ, which is pivotal to our belief. John painted a picture of Christ through seven signs that lead us each one to greater faith, culminating in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he says why? That we might believe. And it's not kind of believing in a, in a general sense. It's an anchor. It's a belief that's unshakable. It's firmly settled, unmovable belief. And he calls us to believe in the resurrection from the dead, that Christ has been raised. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last part of Paul's uh, reflecting on, well, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? In verse 20, he says, But as it is, Christ has been risen from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through this man. Because Christ is risen, the first fruits of eternal life and all of Christian belief is possible. We thought about what life without a risen saviour looks like. Let's finish this morning by thinking about what life with a risen Saviour looks like because Christ has been raised. Amen? Christ has been raised. Can we go down the street into the marketplace and say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, even though people are going to say, you're crazy, you're a nutter. It's not true. Can we say that with such confidence? Let God be called true and all men be called liars because Christ has been 
raised. So what is the outworking of this? Well, we just heard about it. Stephen saw him at the throne of God, ruling in the heavens. Jesus, the risen Savior, is ruling in the heavens. He's ruling over our hearts by faith. And the scripture says that he's going to return for the saints. He's going to take us to be with him. The scripture says he's going to rule for a thousand years over a new heaven and a new earth. His resurrection guarantees sins forgiven to all who believe on him. Life after death. Power. Power to overcome. The indwelling of his spirit. His intercession on our behalf before the Father when we sin. And a daily walk of faith with a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a resurrection from the dead. Christ is risen, and we need to believe it like we really believe it. Someone rang me earlier this week and said, I just got a question for you. Um, if I'm a Christian, if I've believed on Jesus and I get baptized, but I sin, am I still going to heaven? I said, absolutely. Really? He said, that's such good news. What a relief. I said, yeah, it's the best good news. It's the best good news. If Jesus was dead in the grave, there would be no resurrection from the dead. But Jesus is alive and he has made promises that he intends to keep. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? How much do you believe it? Do we need to believe it more? Are we living, pursuing eternal life in other ways? Putting our faith and our confidence in medical advances and, and um, the, the, the pursuit of this kind of lifestyle and that kind of device? Or are we believing more firmly in Jesus than anything else? Are we believing more firmly in the resurrection than anything else? Is our confidence in him more than anything else? Have we come to the same conclusion that John had when he said, I went in, I saw, and I believed? Do you believe this morning? Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray as we go from this place that our faith might increase, that our belief would be strong, an anchor that can't be shifted in the midst of the storms and the waves as we have people from outside of the church put pressure on us. They tell us we're crazy. They tell us we believe impossible things. I thank you, God, that you do so many impossible things even before we get out of bed. I thank you, Lord, that you're alive and living, that you walk with us and all who believe in you by faith have sins forgiven, have the indwelling spirit, have the promise of eternal life and we will walk with you for all eternity. I thank you, Lord, that like John, we can have that realisation that we've seen and we believe. Thank you for the resurrection Jesus Christ, we believe. Amen. And the more